The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Remember back in May of last year when Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler said that former White House counsel Don McGahn would be forced to testify before Congress under subpoena. President Trump may think he can hide behind his lawyers as he launches a series of baseless legal arguments designed to obstruct our work. He cannot think these legal arguments will prevail in court, but he can think he can slow us down and run out the clock. And President Trump did slow the Democrats down in court by 15 months and counting, with legal arguments that have twice won over a panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. As the case over enforcing the subpoena bounces back and forth between that three-judge panel and the full appeals court. The latest decision? The panel ruled two to one that the House cannot sue to enforce the McGahn subpoena, just weeks after the full court ruled seven to two that it can. Joining me to sort this all out is Neil Kinkoff, a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law. Neil, if you look at the news about this case, you would see headlines saying, D.C. Appeals Court rules the House can't enforce McGahn's subpoena. Then D.C. Appeals Court rules the House can enforce McGahn's subpoena. Then three weeks later, can't. It could give you whiplash. What's happening? Mm -hmm. Why the seemingly contradictory decisions from the same court? So partly it has to do with the randomness of how you draw a panel, right? The panels that hear the cases are selected at random from the full complement of judges in the circuit. And so if you happen to get a couple of outliers on the panel, which is what has happened with the McGann subpoena case, they'll decide it one way, even though the overwhelming majority of the D.C. Circuit disagrees with them. And so that's why the case keeps going back and forth from this panel of outliers to the more sensible full court, which then has to send it back to the panel to act in a manner that's consistent with the full court's decision. And the panel has been quite creative in coming up with alternative rationales for denying the subpoena. And really, what that ends up meaning is that the whole thing gets drawn out. And if it gets drawn out, then the president wins because the president just wants this to go and last beyond the election so that nothing happens before the election. And then should he win a second term to have it last throughout that term before there's ever any resolution to it? So this case has been going on for years already. It hasn't even gotten to the Supreme Court yet, which I take it the White House would appeal there. And that's another couple of years added to it. So we're not going to see Don McGahn testifying any time within the next couple of years, I can't imagine. Explain what the full court decided seven to two. So the full court decided that the House of Representatives has standing. That means they're a proper plaintiff to try to seek to enforce their subpoena. You or I couldn't go in to court and seek an order to enforce the House of Representatives subpoena, because although we may have kind of an interest in the case, we're not actually an involved party. 
And there have been a number of cases where the House of Representatives as a plaintiff has been held not to have standing. But in this case, to enforce one of their own subpoenas, they rather obviously have standing, although this panel had held that they didn't. The full on bonk court said quite correctly that, of course, they have standing to enforce their own subpoenas. And by the way, the panel's decision in this case had the two Republican-appointed judges in the majority and the Democratic-appointed judge in dissent. So the full court sends it back to the panel, and the panel is supposed to decide in accordance with what the full court said, whether or not they agree with it, right? So what happened? Right. So when it went back, they decided on kind of an intermediate jurisdictional question. So they said, okay, you have standing, House of Representatives, but you don't have a cause of action. And a cause of action is the legal term for kind of the form by which you enforce your legal rights. So you have a right not to be injured by someone else's negligence. We call that torts. Or you have a right to have your contracts enforced. And there is something called a cause of action that allows you to go into court and enforce in court your right to have someone with whom you have a contract live up to the terms of the contract or to have someone who has committed a tort against you pay you compensation. If there were no cause of action, you would have no way to vindicate your right not to be injured or not to have your contracts breached. So that's what a cause of action is. And what the court said here is that, okay, House of Representatives, you may have been injured, but there is no cause of action that allows you to come into court to vindicate that injury. Now, that claim is flatly wrong, but that's what they said, and that's how it's different than the previous case. So it's another procedural component of a lawsuit that they ruled on, and really the consequences that it will be appealed to the full D.C. Circuit, and I have every confidence that the full D.C. Circuit will again reverse the panel's decision. But even if it does, Trump wins because of the delay that that causes. And then Trump will appeal that to the Supreme Court, further delaying things down the road for years. Neil, did this panel say that Congress would have to pass a law specifically allowing this kind of legal action? Yes. The Congress would have to pass a law um, giving itself a cause of action to go into court and enforce its subpoena through a civil enforcement action. That's exactly what they ruled. So they didn't rule that it would be unconstitutional for Congress to enforce its subpoena, simply that this technical mechanism hadn't been put in place by statute yet. But of course, for Congress to put that in place requires passing a law that I'm quite confident Mitch McConnell's Senate wouldn't take up. And even if they did, and even if they passed it, certainly Donald Trump isn't going to sign it into law. So while it sounds like a very narrow kind of, you just didn't dot your I's and cross your T's, so go back and and do your work. Um, As a practical matter, it's hard to imagine this statute getting um, passed in any way that's going to end up getting Don McGahn to testify. They talk about other things the House can do instead of a subpoena, including its inherent power of contempt, shutting down the government, refusing to cooperate with the president's legislative agenda, and bringing impeachment. Do any of those work? Let's start with the House's inherent power of contempt. When was the last time that worked? And can they revitalize it? I don't think they could revitalize it without 
enacting a statute. And again, that's going to run into the same problem that I just discussed. So I don't think inherent contempt is a practically viable avenue. In terms of the other political weapons that Congress has at its disposal, they're all nuclear. Right, shutting down the government, impeaching the president, and as we saw with the last impeachment, it may not be a nuclear weapon that works. Um, shutting down the government in order to get Don McGahn to testify seems politically preposterous. Right, I, the House wouldn't do that, and if they did do that, I think the public would get really mad that essential government services were being shut down over a subpoena fight. Some of the other weapons that you might think of as being available, like refusing to confirm the president's appointees, aren't actually available to the House because the House doesn't have confirmation authority. The Senate does, um, and in subpoena fights with the administration, that's a real weapon that they can and do use, but the House doesn't have that one. So the idea that the the House has real significant political weapons at its disposal, um, it's really hard in this situation to see what they are. What does this standoff say about the checks and balances that are supposed to be in place between the branches? Well, I think it illuminates an interesting phenomenon that is really sort of unique to the Trump administration. So in the past, the House has had meaningful political weapons at its disposal because members of the president's own political party have been willing to stand up for the institution of Congress and to say to the president, I know we're in the same party, but Congress has a legitimate interest in asking the questions it's asking. You need to answer them. We're not going to support your stonewalling. But that's not happening here. Right. And if you think back to the Clinton years, the House investigations into Whitewater, into firing the White House chef, firing the White House travel office members, the investigations went on and on and on. And House and Senate Republicans did not stand with the president to completely stonewall those investigations. During the Bush years, you saw the same thing with Republicans. But the commitment of Republicans to this president is uniform and complete and has allowed him to say to Congress, no, I'm not giving you anything. I'm not even invoking executive privilege. I just refuse to participate. What are you going to do about it? And when Republicans in Congress won't stand up for the institution's prerogatives, then the president can get away with that. And that is a real erosion of the separation of powers and the design of checks and balances. When another president sees the way that Donald Trump has effectively been able to put off all these subpoenas, and of course, you know, other presidents don't want to comply with subpoenas either. So will that be a roadmap for another administration to say, no, I'm not going to comply. The Trump administration didn't. So why should I? I think that will be the instinct of presidents. I think the answer to them will be that you're not Donald Trump. And the question will be, are members of Congress in your party as committed to you or as afraid of you politically as Republicans have been of Donald Trump? In in the past, the answer to that question has been no. Members of Congress in the the president's party have been willing to go along with subpoenas and with demands for information, which itself places real pressure on the president to work something out with Congress, to come to a mutual agreement. 
that's how it's always worked in the past. And if a president in the future doesn't have the kind of lockstep, unquestioning um, obedience of members of Congress in his political party that Donald Trump has, they won't be able to get away with what Donald Trump has been able to get away with. So in this case, it is going to be appealed, according to Nancy Pelosi. It's going to Mm -hmm. be appealed to the full D.C. Circuit. The full D.C. Circuit rules in favor of Congress and sends it back to the three-judge panel. But in this case, that three-judge panel will be different because one of the judges is retiring. Right. So, So there's a chance at that point that the panel will rule against McGahn. That's right. But there's another intermediate step. So if the full D.C. Circuit on Bonk rules in favor of the House of Representatives, the administration will appeal that to the Supreme Court. There is no chance of that being resolved before the election. right? So we're into a second term or we're into a Biden administration. In a Biden administration, I think the public interest in the issue is greatly diminished. And if it's a second Trump administration, there are continuing mechanisms for delay so that I'm confident we won't have timely access to the important information that Don McGahn has. Finally, Neil, has the court addressed the main theory of the president of absolute immunity of his close advisors from congressional subpoenas? So... Judge Rogers, in her dissenting opinion, reached that issue because she found all the procedural requirements met. The panel, the two judges in the panel, um, they did not reach that question. And the en banc D.C. Circuit, the full panel, did not in the in the case that asked the question about standing. Right? Those are procedural and preliminary issues. So, so far, only one judge on the D.C. Circuit has gotten to that question, and that judge has um, dismissed and rejected the president's argument for complete immunity. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Neil. That's Neil Kinkoff, a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
California has filed its 100th lawsuit against the Trump administration, this time to block the administration's rewriting of a foundational environmental law that's often referred to as the Magna Carta of environmental law, the 50-year-old National Environmental Policy Act. The state's Attorney General, Javier Becerra, called the lawsuit an unfortunate milestone. Now we have seen for the hundredth time lawless behavior emanating from the White House and this administration to the point where we have had to sue. Fortunately, when we have sued, we've usually won. And this should not be any different. We believe that this administration has gone beyond in trying to change NEPA. Twenty other states are joining California in the suit to stop the rollback by the Trump administration of the Nixon-era law. Joining me is Pat Parento, a professor of environmental law at the Vermont Law School. Pat, what does that say reaching 100 lawsuits within less than four years? Well, it's going to be an entry in the Guinness Book of Litigation Records, I think. You know, I've been doing this now for over four decades, almost 50 years. And I honestly, I have never seen so many attempts to both roll back environmental rules, but also, you know, a lawsuit for every one. That's definitely a record in my lifetime. This latest lawsuit challenges the administration's rewriting of Nixon-era rules. Tell us about those rules. Yeah, this one is the our Magna Carta, as we call it, the National Environmental Policy Act. And it was enacted in 1969, took effect in 1970, so it's 50 years old. It's the basic charter, if you will, for environmental policy in the country. And Nixon was the president who signed more environmental legislation than any president and created the Environmental Protection Agency. So, yeah, what a change we've seen in politics in the United States since those days. You know, this is the law that requires the federal government, whenever it's undertaking projects that impact the environment, they could be, you know, highways or dams or leasing oil and gas uh, on land and offshore, to do an environmental impact statement. Look before you leap is the motto, and consider alternatives that are less environmentally damaging and that look to the long term and look at alternatives that would promote environmental values and at the same time promoting economic values. That's the set of rules that have stood for all this period of time, and the Trump administration has made the most radical changes to those rules that we've seen. Give us an example of some of the changes that the Trump administration has made. Well, they, they first of all have narrowed the scope of federal actions that would be subject to these requirements. They've created a bunch of exemptions for activities that uh, would normally have been ha- have required this environmental assessment and and now wouldn't. They've changed the definition of what effects have to be considered so that climate change effects, in particular, would as a, a general matter would not be considered because they're too much in the future or too uncertain uh, in the minds or the views of the the Trump administration anyway. They've narrowed the range of alternatives. That's the key to to the NEPA analysis is looking for less damaging environmental alternatives. And this rule would say if, if you don't have authority to implement an alternative, then you don't have to consider it, even though, you know, one alternative might be to get the authority to consider the alternative. They've limited the amount of public participation that can occur during the NEPA process. NEPA is first and foremost a tool that communities use to try to get a handle on some of these federally authorized projects like pipelines and coal mines and copper mines in Alaska and and that sort of thing. 
So by limiting the ability of citizen groups to comment, you know, you're limiting participation. And they're requiring citizens to document whatever problems they're concerned about with reference to scientific information or, or other technical information that, of course, a lot of communities just don't have. They have a lot of questions, but they're not necessarily expert at answering them. So that's a few of the examples, but it's a quite dramatic change in the way that law has been implemented. So, Pat, a lot of the times when we've talked about these environmental lawsuits against the Trump administration, the grounds have been that the Trump administration didn't follow the rules, the Administrative Procedures Act. What are the grounds here for the lawsuit? The biggest one that's going to be interesting if this case ever gets to the Supreme Court, which it may not, but if it did, is what's called reliance interests. And and what that means is, again, you've had almost 50 years of experience and practice under the prior rules, and a lot of people have become accustomed to that's the way federal projects are evaluated, and they've relied on that as their mechanism for commenting and participating. The same thing is true of a lot of the private parties and others who rely on federal money to build projects or federal permits and so forth. You know, there's been a process in place for all this period of time for how you do this environmental analysis, and now you've changed all that. And they've introduced a lot of new terminology that's ambiguous and and certainly new enough that it's going to have to be tested in court. So that creates a lot of uncertainty across the country. The federal government's involved in so many things, it's, it's almost hard to find something where the government isn't in some way involved. So what you have now is the situation where people knew the rules of the road, knew how you wrote an environmental impact statement, what it had to contain, and so forth, and now that's changed. So we're going to have another period of time, if these rules survive, where all that's going to have to be litigated again and again to you know refine some of these terms and figure out what they mean. Pat, what are this lawsuit's chances of success against the Trump administration? I think given the track record of this administration, the mistakes that they've made, as you mentioned, under the Administrative Procedure Act, um, I think there's a high likelihood that if the case gets to court um, before the election, for example, uh, you might see a court issuing a preliminary injunction. Those are difficult to uh, obtain, but When you have this kind of a dramatic change, and the states, of course, are arguing, you don't really have a justification for this kind of radical change. You you need to have more evidence of the problems that you claim are being created by the law that require this kind of a change. Maybe there may be some changes necessary, but this kind of radical change is so uh, out of the norm that a court might step in and and put an injunction on it. And, of course, if the election goes against the Trump administration, this is one of those rules that could be subject to what's called the Congressional Review Act, which, you know, assuming, again, a big assumption, but assuming that, that Biden were to win and that the Democrats were to take control of the Senate, they'd need both the Senate and the House, then they can pass in a, a very quick resolution overturning this rule. So there's a, there's a variety of ways in which um, this rule may may either get overruled or repealed um, or may be stopped by the court. So there's a lot of different ways in, in which um, this rule could be affected. So you mentioned if Biden wins the election. 
if he wins the election, do we know what he intends to try to roll back? And are those rollbacks going to be difficult? Yeah, I mean, he, he, he certainly made statements about virtually all of these uh, rollbacks. Of course, most of these rules were adopted when he and, and Barack Obama were in office. So he's, he's, if he's not personally familiar with the rules, he, he certainly was, was part of the, the government that created them. And he's, he's vowed to restore, uh, if not all of them, most of them. But, there, you know, again, that will take some time. Um, if these, as these cases are still pending in court, uh, when, if and when Biden takes office, you know, one thing that the new administration can do, which is what the Trump administration did, is go into court and basically concede that the rollbacks were not done properly and ask the court to remand the rules, uh, to be redone yet again. And I, and I would anticipate seeing a lot of that. I mean, again, with the state suing, like you mentioned, and of course, environmental groups suing all the time, I can see a new administration going into court and saying, we don't necessarily agree with all the criticisms being levied by these, these parties, but we do think these rules need to be, uh, reviewed again and revised yet again. And uh, so I, I can I can see a year or more of that kind of activity from a, a new administration. And then, of course, the big question is what happens in the meantime while all that new review is going on. And that's that's a more sort of rule by rule kind of question as to whether a, a rule will remain in place while it's being reviewed or taken off the books and replaced with the rule that preceded it. It's pretty complicated. Some former EPA administrators who served both Democratic and Republican administrations wrote support for EPNs resetting the course of the EPA. There are a lot of bold proposals there, and one that struck me was restoring science in the matter of EPA decision-making. Has science been taken out of the EPA decision-making in the Trump administration? Well, the, the Trump administration has a rule, a proposed rule, that would require that the only science that you can rely on is science that's been published, including medical uh, assessments that are the basis, for example, for Clean Air Act rules controlling air pollution and its effect on people's health. Some of, the, some of those studies are epidemiological studies. Some of them actually contain, you know, private information, information that's actually protected by various privacy acts, HIPAA is one of them. So you don't reveal the names of subjects that might have been involved in various investigations or even experiments, um, trials, you know, medical trials. Um, and so the, the scientific community is saying, well, wait a minute, you know, you can't force us to disclose that kind of information that we're, we're bound to, to, to keep confidential. Um, and, and, uh, Therefore, you're, you're going to eliminate a, a whole body of scientific evidence uh, from consideration because you're forcing us to do something that's against our ethics and rules. And this is what's come to be known as secret science. That's, that's the way the Trump administration characterizes some of these medical records and scientific evidence as secret uh, b- because it is confidential. 
And so one of the ways to undermine science, the science that EPA has traditionally relied on, is to limit the, the, the types of science that can be used. And there is a rule that, that's, that's trying to impose that kind of limit on scientific evidence, and, and the, the scientific community is uniformly opposed to that. So that's yet another rule, and it isn't final yet, and so it may get caught in this Congressional Review Act uh, process as well. What strikes you, what struck you most about the EPNs resetting the course of the EPA, the suggestions they had? Well, just how fundamental uh, the rollbacks and the sort of degradation of EPA's professional capability has has become in the last four years. I mean, this this group we're talking about is the, the most senior uh, members of the EPA staff, both political appointees and, and career staff, um, you know, hundreds, literally, of, of scientists and engineers and lawyers and others, yeah, economists that have been working with EPA and for them to come out with a, you know, proposed restoration plan that's this comprehensive tells you the amount of damage that's been done to the integrity of EPA as an institution. Um, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a long time uh, to restore that. Um, it's not just the rules, of course. You know, it's the people that work there uh, and the management systems that are in place to make it work effectively. Um, you know, I, I was with EPA. It, it, uh, um, it, it's a very daunting challenge to implement something like 18 or more of these, these laws, all of these environmental laws. And uh, it, takes, it takes time and effort and experience and, tr- and, frankly, trial and error sometimes to figure out, you know, how do you make these programs work so they're really protecting public health, but they're also doing it in a way that's efficient and not causing at least unnecessary costs on industry, but some of these costs are necessary, and how you make that determination, what's really necessary to protect public health, and what's something that might be too costly in exchange for the benefits that you get. You see, those things really do demand a very, very high level of professional expertise, And and right now, EPA's capabilities are probably at the lowest they've ever been. Well, and one of the goals is restoring credibility to the EPA. As you mentioned, the EPA has been an agency since President Nixon, so it has functioned under Democratic and Republican administrations. Have you ever seen the EPA needing to be reset so much before? I mean, how much of an impact on the EPA's mission has the Trump administration had? It's really had a devastating effect. Uh, you know, the closest analog in history would be when, when uh, President Reagan appointed Ann Bur- Burford Gorsuch, uh, of course, the mother of, of the now Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch, uh, as, as head of EPA. Um, that was a time when EPA's mission was, was under serious attack, um, and there was an attempt made to sort of reform uh, EPA to be more sympathetic to business and industry and, and, and use less stringent regulatory mechanisms, that didn't last very long. I mean, she, she was ushered out of office within just a few years 
And then real, William Ruckelshaus was brought back in to, quote, restore EPA, which he did. And that's when I went to work for EPA in the, in the 80s. And, but, you know, and he was able to turn things around very quickly. Uh, there, there hadn't been a long enough time and significant enough damage that it didn't take him that long to reverse it. But the, but the kinds of problems that EPA experienced in that era are nothing compared to what they're experiencing today. There, there wasn't a wholesale attack on virtually every regulation uh, that was on the books. That, that is the case here, whether it's air, water, pesticides, hazardous waste, uh, you name it, and it's under attack. Climate change rules, of course. Um, and so we've, we've never seen this kind of broad-scale attack on every form of regulation that EPA is responsible for. We've never seen that before. Thanks, Pat. That's Pat Parento, a professor at Vermont Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every week, 9 at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.